0: Stanford University
1: and the Stanford Graduate School of Business.
2: I want to ask you guys two questions, all of you. And just uh, briefly, uh, on, on Monday's class, they showed in the, in the search fund note, I think you guys have seen it, the distribution of returns. And I, I mentioned earlier that, that that wasn't my experience as an investor. Uh, if you could just answer, go down the line and answer two questions. One, what percent of the search funds you invest in? Do you think get a deal done? No. What percent of those deals do you do, and what percent of those deals work out? And I'll start with myself. My own experience is about three-quarters of the people who start a search fund find a deal. It's been down a little bit in the last two years. About three-quarters of those deals I do, and about 90-plus percent of them have a, have a reasonable return on capital. So that was, that's
1: my own experience, Bob. You haven't thought of that, in terms of percentages, uh, probably a half a dozen deals, uh, searches over the last, geez, 23 years or so, never, never concluded, never found a company. Yeah, uh, you know, I bet I've turned down 25 percent, maybe more, in terms of the the, the deal. Uh, we've 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 conclusively demonstrated that we know how to kill companies. Uh, <laughs> Done that a couple different times. In fact, Jim and I did one together. <laughs> uh, but most, I mean, in general, they they all produce good, uh, decent returns. I mean, I I know there's a lot of focus on IRRs. I just, you know, if I start out with this and I end up with this, and this one's bigger, I usually figure it's a good deal. And most of them have been. Jim, what would be your your
2: three numbers?
3: Seventy-five percent, seventy-five percent, and seventy-five percent.
0: I'd say we'd probably, uh, 80%, we probably only invest in half the deals that are brought to us. Okay. Um, and, and there are all sorts of reasons that, that we, we turn them down. Uh, and then probably 80%, 80% have 80%
2: worked, out, have worked out well. well. So, that, so that's a pretty different distribution than in the search fund note. And you probably have 65% of the data points or 50% of the data points represented in this room. So there must be something that is pushing people to, to the left. So, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I um, and which of the three deals did you guys support?
1: I didn't support any of them. Uh, I, I would, what I would have told the, the, the searchers is that the, I think these are three special, you know, true believers, specialty consumer market deals. If they wanted to do the green one, the fertilizer or toys, I could put them, up, put them in touch with people who knew something about that because I don't know anything about consumer products per se. I could be talked into the, to the uh, veterinary business uh, and I thought it had critical due diligence questions that you really could answer in the other two, que- other two businesses you couldn't. So I, wouldn't have, I would have said, shut it down. You know, you played the game well, but sorry.
3: I love the toy business. I I just I think this is a great company. Uh it's not it, it's really not toys. It's nostalgia products for parents and grandparents to buy. Give it to the kid, the kid plays with it once or twice and it sits over by the Christmas tree and they feel good about having bought it. It's got a premium price. The manufacturing process can't be that complicated. You could outsource it. Uh the uh there's little or no IP content here. Uh, you, all you really have to do, and, and, and the sales force is only paid in cash after they sell the product, probably after they collect the money. So it's a, it's a legal classic pyramid structure like Amway or any other company you've heard Remember, about. He
1: was an insurance salesman.
3: And I can, <laughs> I can just see. I mean, I don't think that Marks and Spence, not Marks and Spence, but Marks and Church. Church. Church should Should try to manage the sales force, I think they should go conduct a methodical search with a paid headhunter and find somebody who's probably older and has done this uh, and been very successful in some uh, successful a uh, uh, marketing uh, uh, structure similar to this. I think that uh, you can the irRs i think they're underestimating the potential of this business I, I just think that with with a little help from somebody who who uh... an investor perhaps that's that's uh... sees this thing as a more attractive opportunity they can get the irrs up into the range where investors will get excited very simple company to operate
0: well. um I, I would start with um, just thinking about the seller and from in our experience the seller is absolutely critical uh, less integral to the business, so not involved per- terribly much in the customer relationships, not involved in critical functions. One of the big problems we saw with, the, or I saw with the toy business was she runs product development. Product development is, toy companies are, are all about product development. So if she goes AWOL on you, you're toast. Um, and that and they not be terribly, in, they're, they're going to be involved with the people, but you don't want the people to be loyal to them. You want them to be loyal to the company and, and the like. Second, that the seller be available. Third, that the seller be willing to leave capital at risk. Fourth, that the seller have a really good reason for selling. Uh, Fifth, that they have reasonable expectations. And I I wasn't enthralled with the expectations of either of the first two companies, the the, uh, fertilizer business or the toy company. They both seemed like they were starting out fairly high. And they were people, I guess the the last thing was they they were a little more emotional or creative than rational. And um, I, I think. Having a seller, it is an incredibly complex process to buy a company, and you're going to have to talk through a lot of issues. And if you have people who have outsized expectations at the beginning, that's a that's a re, and and may not reason things terribly clearly. That's a, a warning sign. So at the end of the day, we I came down on American vet, Veterinary. I like industry growth six to nine percent, relatively recession-proof, fragmented industry. In terms of the company, good reputation for service and low turnover in the personnel, that's always a big issue. Um, I suspect it's at a point of inflection in terms of the corporate staff. They have a big corporate team, and if you do succeed in driving revenues after that, you may find that the operating leverage is very high. Um, I like the seller situation, it was a guy in his 60s, it didn't sound like he was going to be leaving anywhere. We think someone who's going to disappear the day after the sale is, is is fatal to us. Um, Seller, The relative growth avenues, adding services, I think JJ you focused on that, sort of expanding the service offering. Uh, Visit declines, we were worried about, or I I was worried about, but I concluded that if the industry is growing, you're probably, that's probably more an execution Mm -hmm. issue than it is an industry issue and, and something that should be solvable. Financial systems was a real concern, but it may also be an opportunity. You have to figure out whether you can get them in place. Once you understand how the different 15 locations are doing, you may find that one's doing something really well that you can roll out to the other location. And so those are big red flags, but things that we could probably get through in diligence. So I thought the the problems I saw with the other businesses, much harder to address through due diligence. These ones were things that you could ultimately understand through your diligence and and figure out whether you could uh, deal with the risks or not. Thanks.
2: So uh, I think it's less important which companies the three of these uh, investors wanted to back, and more insights into how they think about companies and, and what goes on inside
1: their heads. Can I now? If Jim had brought me the toy deal, by God, I would have listened because that enthusiasm. <laughs> and, no, no, I'm not, I'm not. Now I'm not being funny. Uh, that enthusiasm and passion and thoughtfulness about it really struck me. Uh, I probably would have turned him down in the end, but uh, it, it would have definitely have gotten my attention because he. He thought it through and and grabbed onto something, and that's critical.
2: So obviously, that that, that passion and how it's presented matters. Um, Sonia, Um, I had a question about something that I think hasn't come up yet, which we didn't discuss: is liability exposure. And for me, um, that also made the third deal as somewhat more attractive because, I mean, choking hazard in toys. Besides that, but it's obviously also hinted in the fertilizer a little bit in the end that, you know. choking on fertilizer? <laughs> no, that was, sorry, Not that was the toy business. Put a sticker on those, fine. But um, but in the second business with the fertilizer in the end, it, it's hinting a little bit at potential liability exposure. And if I'm running my search fund, I obviously can't afford Simpson-Thatcher. And in terms of potential liability exposure, how, what I meant to ask you earlier, how do you find a great lawyer? And, and also, how do you go about something that's so hard to quantify in, in, in these two cases? Which one of you would like to take that? Joe? Well, the,
3: so, so the, the fertilizer business, uh, uh, I worried a little bit about the things you brought up. I, I felt like that on many dimensions, that's a very poor fit. The business is a very, very poor fit with, uh, for an inexperienced search fund entrepreneur or an entrepreneurial team. You've got um, uh, the, 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 there is some legal risk when you, when you hear that Hunter, uh, well Hunter scares me when I, when I hear that he doesn't like to see the bosses coming around his shop, his lab. Um, but more importantly, to scale this company, uh, you've got to triple the infrastructure. You've got to go from to three labs from one, six plants from two, six warehouses from two, and you got two years to do that. And that's a tall order for people who have never run a company before.
1: So, the, finding a lawyer. Finding a lawyer. That's pretty. Uh, that's pretty easy to do. I mean, you, through your network and so forth. Uh, But one of the issues here, this is really a startup company that's a few years old. And one of the big mysteries of startups, especially if you get early traction with revenue, you just can't tell if that's low-hanging fruit or if that's really indicative of the marketplace. And one of the things that struck me about this, I mean, you know, organic fertilizers have been around for years. And the people that are buying them are willing to pay the price, the premium price, are really true believers. And it's hard to figure out. If they're indicative of a of a big true believer market, and uh, that was the thing that really turned me. And plus, you know, going back to what I said, you know, so if there's somebody in the company who you're critically dependent upon, this guy, the, the chemist or whatever he is, and and he can't be managed, man, you're you're toast if you it, it, as a nuance. No, entrepreneur. Up. We're
2: going to talk about lawyers in class for legal issues, including providing finding a great lawyer, anything. You we
0: we'll be here then, but and we'll dive into it more
2: detail. Okay. Um, I, 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 I'll throw in my two cents, which is that a good lawyer is really hard to find. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I think uh, especially a great lawyer is very hard to find. But within your investor group, it's just a part as, as Bob alluded to, it's a, it's a perfect use of your investor group to network into a good lawyer. And, and the second part of your question about, about product liability, I believe that there are certain risks that look scary on the front end but are insurable. And I think that's, that feels to me like an insurable risk. So. Andy? Um, I just want to follow up on Joe's question from earlier and get your guys' perspectives on what you think about roll-ups as, as a search fund strategy.
1: <laughs> They're really, really hard and the time to do a roll-up is when you're clearly at the point where you're running the company and it's not running you and it takes you a couple of years to get to that point and you've got a culture in a system and a methodology into which you're merging something so that the new companies that you're buying uh, are, are not going to be changing the, the, the uh, culture and the style of your company but even with that uh, there are so many things to consider in roll-ups, that if I I'm not real enthusiastic about going into a company where the roll-up strategy is 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 sort of pivotal to its long-term success. That's my own, my own personal view.
3: Yeah, I I think uh, you know in the in the in the American Veterinary deal, you're going to be you're going to have thirteen and a half million dollars tied up in a bunch of stores that don't have any organic sales growth, and so the the investment thesis is to go out and buy more stores that don't have any organic sales growth. If you can't get these stores to grow that you got, I don't see how you're gonna make a return on this investment by putting more money to work in non-growing stores. Uh, I also think that you're gonna pay more for the stores you buy than it would cost to open them by a huge margin. But you are getting some EBITDA, but it's not growing. So I think I'd probably look at opening new stores and see if I could make some money. If, I were, if, if you made me do that deal, I, I would look at opening
1: my own new stores. That's a real good, that's a classic make-buy decision. I, I would just say Peter one, one, one that. thing
2: about roll-ups is that some industries are fragmented for a reason. And uh, on paper it looks good, but really understand if it's an industry, here's what I would say. If it's an industry that has been around a long time and is still fragmented, yeah, I know why. there's probably a reason it's still fragmented. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The, the one other thing about roll-ups, and I, I spent a fair amount of time doing them with Brentwood Associates, and and one of our most successful investments is a roll-up, but one of the real issues... What, what e- industry was that? Uh, gosh, we run golf courses, trade magazines, a uh, num- number of courses, and right now we've got a company that's in methadone clinics, but one of the real issues is the management complexity, because if you, and, and it's probably one of the bigger negatives to me about American Vet, but I think it's overcomable, it, but you generally you have 15 locations that <coughs> probably the top paid person who's your P&L manager is making $50,000, that doesn't have a lot of education, doesn't have real management experience, that they've kind of grown up through the ranks, and that person is, that's your front line. That's your frontline P&L manager. We had this problem in Spades in the golf course business, and and you can set up all sorts of fancy incentive structures. They they don't. When we gave them all equity. They didn't understand what equity meant until the day they cashed the check. <laughs> and and it was. Um, I mean, it worked out splendidly, but not. It was almost despite that issue, not because of it. Um, it's tough. Yeah. So I actually I really like the fertilizer deal, and I think power pitching, our pitching like, obviously there's a lot of risk. Deal, I can see that. How, how attractive of a pitch would that be if, you know, maybe not this company, but a really high-risk, high-return deal in general for a search fund? Like, obviously, it's not a typical deal, but is that something you would ever consider, or is that pretty much just strike up off the bat,
1: just in the I'd probably turn it down just because it's a specialty consumer deal. I just don't know. I mean, every time I've done something like that, I've lost money, which tells you that, tells, tell, would tell you and me that, Uh, You know, I don't know anything about it, and I can't bring anything to the the table besides money. I could probably introduce you to some people who could. So if you had a group of, uh, as in the toy case, you know, if you had a group of investors who really understood that business and could figure out how to help you be successful, uh, that's what you want. But I, I just wouldn't be that person. We have a much
0: harder time with uh, high growth or high really high risk really high reward situations we're not venture capitalists we're, we're buyout guys and, and uh, much more focused on you know get a good business that you, that you have high confidence you're going to make some money on and then hopefully the way you make a lot of money on it is by getting it into an adjacent industry that, that really where you can get that growth but with relatively low risk
2: Robert um, I wanted- Um, when you are working on those proprietary deals and you're you know, making a lot of phone calls going to conferences, I guess in my experience when you talk to some of those entrepreneurs or family or businesses, you know, you say, oh, you shouldn't selling like, selling." Most of them will say, you know, yeah, at, at the right price, you know, of course. But uh, like what's the strategy or in your experience, like what's been the most successful strategy in like, f- like determining, you know, who actually is realistic and like getting down to it? Because a lot of times it seems like, you know, if you're willing to have a conversation, you can spin your wheels for a while. Um, and like, I guess what, what are the tactics that you guys have seen that
3: have worked the best and you know, approaching that at those angles? May, may I take a step? So, so just to be clear, I don't make that many phone calls. And, well, er- no, no. and okay. every one of them that I make gets answered by the person that I want to talk to. That is, that is my whole purpose in life when I'm searching because to, to, I, I, I've done it. I've knocked on doors, door-to-door selling life insurance, and I hated it. I've made 100 calls a day, and I hated it. And so I've just, I want to have these warm introductions where, hey, so you know Joe Schmoe, and we talk about their fishing trips and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it's a much more pleasant search, but there's a lot of time between those calls. So you've got to do something, so you might as well uh, look at opportunistic deal flow coming in over over the transit.
1: Qualifying sellers is not, is an art, it's not a science. And there are all kinds of things that you can look at uh... i, I don't have a laundry list of, of uh, you know if you do these ten things you're home free i mean first of all if the sellers old it's better than if they're young if they got kids who ought nothing to do with the business it's better than if they have a son or a daughter who's already in the business uh... if you can get the wife or the spouse to know how much money is involved and they think about spending it that's good uh... If if the seller is will if the seller is willing to is willing to immediately introduce you uh, to his employees uh, as you know the potential new owner maybe that comes down longer if, if they're willing to let you talk to their customers all of those things are kind of signs that they're that that that, that they're serious if uh, the amount of money involved if you know enough about their personal financial circumstances. To suggest that the amount of money involved is something they really can live with, uh, you know, you're going to run a lot, across a lot of businesses—a ten million dollar business. The entrepreneur is taking a couple of million dollars out a year, and he's going to get eight million dollars in cash. But that ain't going to work. There's no way you can invest eight million dollars after taxes and make two million dollars a year. I mean, so there's a whole bunch of things like that. You sort of need to get your arms around when it comes to figuring out if the person who's going to sell is real.
2: issue of qualifying the seller is really critical, because in a search fund, your biggest enemy is time. Every month that ticks by is one less month that you have to do your search. And it is easy to burn nine months on a deal, which is a huge chunk of your search fund. When in the end, the guy was never going to sell, or was never going to sell under terms that were reasonable to you. And it's funny, you got to chuckle when he said, get the people to spend their money. But when I bought my first company, a guy that was an advisor to me uh, who was very, he was very, very deal savvy, and uh, he ended up being our attorney, but he, he wasn't an investor. And he said the guy, the seller's name was George. He said, he said, get George and Carla, his wife, to start spending the money in their head. And and I did, and I asked him, so what are you going to do afterwards? And they talk about buying this ranch and that ranch. And and, and what happened is, is I could see that they had moved on that he was actually in a different place, and he wanted to get to that place mentally. And that convinced me that, in fact, he was a seller.
1: Just, to add one, just one quick point, and that is you know, it, it, it's been years since I've seen this survey. But typically, when you ask somebody, who are you, they answer by giving you their title and the company they work for, which is the wrong answer. And most sellers are intimately identified with their company. And so you're trying to figure out just what David said—that that they're willing to separate—and we've seen, I've seen, I can think of three deals that busted at the very end because the seller just couldn't, in the end, imagine themselves not running that company. And that's what you got to figure out as quickly as you possibly can, so you don't waste time. So
2: I, I come out. We had a deal that was a great deal. Um, remember the construction equipment? Oh the yeah, I did. It came back twice and it was so close and it was really a good deal and what happened is the guy ended up redoing projections, he was half out the door, he redid projections and said, I can do this, it'll be great, I'm going to do this. <laughs> and what we could have done is just parallel process along the way so that, you know, we shouldn't have just ignored him because he might have sold, but um, we should have really had plan B, you know, bubbling on the back burner right away. And it's, it's an art, but...
3: If you don't leave that I'd go see because I don't make many calls I I can afford to go see everybody that I get in contact with if I don't leave that first meeting with a pledge from him to send me his financials and him he or she having given me Some broad range of what their EBITDA is and the number of employees and that kind of stuff if not hand me the financials on the way out the door then I really don't take that much further because there's really not anything to discuss. I know so many searchers that have spent nine months courting sellers who never get to first base with them. Right.
2: Uh, Gus? Uh, so, uh, as investors, I want to understand how you know, think about the sort of life cycle of the search funds. As, you know, you're trying to present search funds don't you know, fund the, the actual um, acquisition for, um, and how do you think about both sort of from an investor's perspective that the commitment you're making and how you have that conversation with the searcher when you invested the of them initially? Because it's obviously very challenging for the uh, searcher to have a company and have, have to fill holes from investors who, for wh- whatever reason, have decided uh, not to participate. So, I guess that's from the searcher's perspective, and from the um, seller's perspective, I would think. Business school, uh, recent business school grad, going around saying, you know, I have these people who will give me money in the future. Uh, what what role do you play in the selling, in the um, in the acquisition process to
1: make the seller confident that there's actually people standing behind the, the searcher?
0: We have a couple of times been asked to go out. One one time we were asked to go out and visit with a seller. A couple, of, number of times, talk with a seller to give them comfort that we were serious. We we never say we're going to back the person in whatever the deal is. That would be nonsense. We don't know what the deal, the transaction, the company, et cetera. But um, yeah, we, of the numbers, I think we turn down the most deals that are presented to us. And, and it isn't that we just say no goodbye. We we have usually along the way tried to say you know here are, here are our issues. If you can address these and do dil- more diligence them and, and mitigate the risks, we're we're going to take a hard look. But um, so we'll try and give the searcher a lot of questions about what is it that would make it a good deal or a bad deal to us, or good, good investment or bad investment, and uh, try so that they're not usually, rarely is someone surprised by what our response. We've telegraphed it along the way by the questions, and if they can answer them, we're all ears if they can't.
1: That's why you've got to maintain good relationships with your investors and keep them apprised all the way along. Don't surprise them at the end of the deal. But in the real world today, uh, you're going to have a gap. A, the banks aren't where they used to be. So you know you've got a problem there uh, for all kinds of reasons. I mean, 20 years ago, I could say with absolute confidence, any deal I was involved in, you could get it done with the investors around the table. Uh, there was enough debt financing available. The markets were a lot different. Today, that's not true. So I think you just it's a matter of making Having good communications with your investors, I talk to sellers on a regular basis on this issue, to convince them that you know that this particular entrepreneur has a very smart group of investors who know how to get these things done, and if the due diligence proceeds properly, as, as uh, you just mentioned, you know that that will be there.
0: hire is required, and you know, the search team is basically saying, look, I need to spend 10% of EBITDA on this person who is going to run an aspect of the business for me, um, for example, what we like mentioned on the, in, in the toy case, uh, what's the general
3: attitude towards that? Well, uh, if that hire is going to be made right away, uh, in the calculation of the EBITDA multiple, I like to see that person's salary in the EBITDA uh, that calculates the multiple. And then if it's, uh, if it's a small company, and that takes EBITDA from a million down to $750,000, and we're now paying 14 times EBITDA, I don't like that. If, it really, <laughs> if, it, if it's uh, you know $2 million and it takes it down 10%, then that, that looks different cosmetically and substantively.
2: I, I might add to that that it depends. Because if you're buying a company where a lot of things are lining up and you need a key hire, but everything else is lining up pretty, pretty well, that might be something to be okay. If on the other hand, this is a one of about eight things that have to get done in order for this deal to work out, then I would be less likely to do it. So I would, I, I would just put it in the basket of operational risk that you're taking, or execution <laughs> risk. Let me say
0: the other thing is, it just depends what the, what the position is. If you're trying to hire a CFO, that's going. We would be a lot more sympathetic to that than if you're trying to hire someone to replace the product development person at, at uh, the toy company. That we would worry a lot about. It just depends how mission central it is.
2: This yeah, Alex. Um, uh, so uh, across the board, seventy-five to ninety percent, or eighty to ninety percent
3: of your investments are a success. And then, but we have the report saying that it's more. Wondering what, what's going on there, what's all there. And, <coughs> and, uh, and
1: talk a little bit about those we're, we're smart. <laughs> 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 well, talk about, you know,
3: if an error errors in the report, if these you are know, random search going on, of people in the Midwest that don't know what's going on, but they're searching. <laughs> <by laughs> you guys really have uh, the selection skill. And, and this is a bias you know, going
0: on. So you guys really do a great job choosing. Uh, to the right ones.
3: Either that or we do a great job of, of culling out the ones that are least likely to succeed and work out. And there, those are two different things. I, you really just never know what you've invested in is going to work out, which are going to be the, the winner. and so, But it's pretty easy to spot the dogs, I think. Well, well, let's, excuse me, if I
2: can jump in. Why don't we take these in two chunks? Let's talk first about the ability, if there is an ability to spot a successful searcher when they're raising their search fund. And then we'll go to the, to, to the issue of when they actually buy a company. Um, and, and, and I'll begin with, I'm sort of in Jim's camp. I think it's really hard anymore to identify after a meeting or two whether someone's going to be successful. But I, there are a half a dozen questions that I ask, and I, I, I bet the panelists have, have their own half a dozen questions that allow me to weed out some, some obvious problems. Bob, just on the issue of of the search
1: fund. Yeah, it's it's um, it's it's one of the mysteries and thrills of doing this because uh, I mean I am not going to name names but I can think of some people who are you know if I invest I've concluded I've concluded that this person is capable of doing this, Uh, but. You know the moonshots have been surprises. Uh, in fact, a very well-known professor in the business school, when I now who, who used to uh, give me some detailed uh, evaluations of students, now would say to me when I call him, he say, "Of course, you know I no longer make predictions, and, and it's just because it's really hard. And so uh, you you try and make the best judgments you can based on the data that's available, and and then then." then you put work in with the, with the entrepreneur to help them be successful.
2: Just because of the time, one of you take the, the search fund in a bit.
0: The, the search fund? Yeah. yeah, yeah I, I to, to, to me, the critical thing is, does person, do, do I think this is someone who really wants to run a small business, actually get in and wrap their arms around that, and who's going to like managing people of all different backgrounds? So for me, I, it, it's much more a negative screen. If, they, if I don't see that or if I sense anything that tells me <coughs> These guys would be much happier working for Goldman than, than running a business. That's a huge red flag and we'll walk away. Guys out of the military or gals out of the military are actually a pretty good sign for us, a, a good favorable sign because they have made decisions. They've led people. They've managed people. They've got people, blue collar, white collar, everything. They, they deal with it and that's a big plus to us. So I, I, I'm a real softy.
2: Jim, very quickly on, on now you've got a deal why is your hit rate on your follow-on acquisition so much higher than the industry average, if you will, Well, you believe
3: that? Well, I know that, the, that, that the vast majority of the companies in the, the 22 uh, search funds that I've been in that bought companies and have exited, um, the, they had really good corporate governance. They had a one or two strong directors uh, on their boards that uh, took them to task at every meeting. On the important issues, and made sure that in the early years they focused on important things. That's one common thread. Uh, There's luck plays a role. Uh, They they ended up choosing good industries. So you're talking about of the ones that worked out that I invested in and worked out. Yeah. So not the ones that I avoided because I called them out.
2: Right. Yeah. I I think for example, if you looked at the you looked at the industries and you said line to the outcome, and you said, which of those industries just don't make sense, and you pull them out, I think you would immediately see a huge skew to the right. Absolutely. So my, my own feeling is most of that is explained by industry. The second piece, which is a cousin of that, is explained by opportunistic search versus an industry search. And I think if you just change those two variables, you have a very different outcome for search funds. I want to just have a couple of closing remarks um, so that we can end on time. and. Um, First of all, we've got a great, we had a great opportunity here to have these three people, so could we thank them? (laughs) And they they don't always clap, too, so. (laughs) All right. In the middle of the rest of my life, I walk in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost this is from the Divine Comedy. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, but a straightforward pathway had been lost. Ah me, how hard a thing it is to say, what was this forest savage, rough, and stern, which in the very thought renews the fear? So bitter it is, death is little more. But of the good to treat which I there found, Speak, will I, of the other things I saw there. I cannot well repeat how there I entered, so full I was of slumber at the moment in which I had abandoned the true way. But after I had reached a mountain's foot, at that point where the valley terminated, which had with consternation pierced my heart, upward I looked, and I beheld his shoulders, vested already with that planet's rays, which leadeth others right by every road." There's a temptation, I think, in in human existence to base your life on contingency, to only take that first courageous step when all the conditions are perfect, when your list of criteria have been fully met. And the same can be applied for your your personal criteria. I'll step into the ring after my student loans are paid off, or once I have operational experience. When well, the market improves, after I get the down payment on my house, and my kids get in school, after I graduate, and pretty soon everything is behind you. It's mm-hmm. as if we could complete. If we could completely control the climate of our existence, get the temperature just right. Only when we have a full sense of freedom, then I'll take that courageous step. But I don't think that complete that complete control over your life and the variables in your life ever really exist in the real world. So in the middle of the rest of my life, I walk in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost.
3: For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.